This is a podcast from BBC Studios, the commercial subsidiary of the BBC. Hey guys, thanks so much for coming along. This is a recording of the TalentWorks podcast, which is a BBC Studios podcast. So you guys know the BBC, they make shows like Blue Planet 2 or Strictly Come Dancing. Well, TalentWorks is a department in the BBC which collaborates with digital talent. So we basically take digital creators from short form to long form. We've done programs before with Joe Sugg, Casper Lee, Dan and Phil, the Pixie Woo ladies, Sprinkle of Glitter. So a real mix of talent, Max and Harvey from TikTok. So it's not just YouTube, it's creators from Facebook or Instagram. So we're really excited to be here today. The format is we're just going to, myself and Brona are going to ask a few questions and then we're going to open it out to you guys where you guys can ask your questions of our incredible guest, um, I'm Helen O'Donnell and I work in TalentWorks. I'm the head of development and this is Brona. And I'm a development producer at TalentWorks. So um, we're really excited to have Jim Louderback with us today. Jim's a leader in the field of digital media and he's spent 20 years building his legacy across publishing and media and technology. And as CEO of VidCon, Jim led its sale to Viacom in 2018. <laughs> and has been instrumental in globalising the event. So it had its first European stop in Amsterdam last year. And then obviously we're now here in London and we're really, really excited that VidCon has come to the UK. So we just want to pick Jim's brains about his love of online video, what's kept him so passionate throughout his career, um, and through such a monumental shift in the evolution of creators and content. So Jim, we're going to start about your early career. Um, So you started out as a TV presenter. Actually, you know, it's funny. I actually started out as uh, as a geek building computer systems and databases for big companies. So I I spent the first couple of years actually just building computer systems and fell into the world of media. But yeah, I was a TV presenter okay. somewhere along the way. Yes, and then you moved into the world of production. Mm-hmm. So um, for those in the audience who don't know, um, Jim had a company called Revision 3, which he sold to Discovery before joining VidCon. Can you tell us a bit more about Revision 3? Yeah, Revision 3 was... Um, uh, would, Prior to that, I had helped start a cable TV network called ZDTV that became Tech TV. It was all about computer technology and stuff like that. And, you know, we thought we'd make a big TV network out of it. It turns out people wanted to watch it, but not enough to make it viable. But some of the folks that I'd worked with, uh, as the rise of the Internet and the Internet got fast enough, the technology got good enough so that we could create TV-style programming but deliver it digitally – um, and this, this is even before YouTube started, um, or as YouTube was starting, decided that uh, let's try and create an online video uh, company that would take the essence of what we're doing at Tech TV, which is technology content and geek content and gaming and science, and do it uh, online and deliver it online. And so that was Revision 3. So uh, we were, and as we built that up, as YouTube started to grow up, we became an early, what's called a multi-channel network, much like Maker or Studio 71 or Full Screen. And, uh, but we were dedicated, we, we weren't broad, we weren't trying to be everyone to everything, we were trying to be just science and tech and gaming and, um, and, and geek culture, mm-hmm. really. And so we built that up um, into something that was pretty strong, we were pretty early, um, earlier than Maker and Full Screen and Studio 71, and um, you know, eventually uh, we sold it over to Discovery in 2012. Awesome. And at what point were you there? Did you do your TV presenting in that? I was uh, when we did ZDTV and Tech TV. So when we launched ZDTV, it was a cable network about technology. I hosted a show called Fresh Gear. Nice. And Fresh Gear was all about the latest new gadgets, hardware, and software. You know, I would 
we'd get in the cool new stuff, and I'd be like, yeah, take a look at this new phone from OnePlus One. It's really interesting. It's got a camera on the back and its own little light and a fingerprint sensor on the front. Let's see if it actually works. <laughs> hey, look, it recognized me. You ought to buy this phone. That's the kind of stuff I would do. Oh, amazing. For those, uh, for those listening, Jim is very enthusiastically yeah. holding his phone. I'm completely <laughs> convinced into, into buying it. So you then became editorial director of VidCon, and then mm-hmm. you are now CEO of well, VidCon. Yeah, so what, what happened was after I was at Discovery for a couple of years, uh, the, or, so we're in the U.S., we're about to do our 10th VidCon, and uh, it, well, I was running this online video company, Revision 3, when, Vi- when VidCon started, and knew Hank and tried to get Hank to join our network, but he wouldn't. Um, a lot of the science creators were very leery of these MCNs that we were building, rightly so, actually. Um, we were good, but, you know, rightly so. Uh, anyway, so spoke of the first one, sponsored three or four of them. Um, actually, you know, here's a funny story. So, you know, D- Discovery has this thing called Shark Week, right? And so um, after we sold to Discovery, I think it was the fourth uh, VidCon, second one in, in uh, Anaheim, California, which is uh, where Disneyland is in, uh, just south of L.A., brought a 60-foot mechanical shark to VidCon. And, oh, wow. Uh, and uh, because Shark Week was the next week, and um, we had Phil DeFranco as part of our network, um, SourceFed, and we actually, Phil hosted Shark Week, but we were like crushing things like, like surfboards and beer kegs and iJustine's cell phone. And um, so... Had, you know, did that and spoke of VidCons. And then after I left Discovery, um, I had a non-compete in the media world. I, um, I left, but I wasn't allowed to go work in another media company for another year because they're still paying me. It was kind of a good deal. <laughs> um, but I could go work at events. So I called up Hank Green, started VidCon. I'm like, Hank, I love VidCon, you know, and I've done a lot of stuff with you. That industry track, he does a separate industry version, which um, uh, happened here as well. And I said, you want some help with it? And he said, why don't you come run the industry track for me? We're going to do a creator. We're going to build this new creator track. I need someone to come run it and make it great. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing anything else. Why not? Um, you know, and I was sitting at home. And I'm like, well, I could sit at home for a year or I could go do the industry track for a year and then maybe get another job in media. But as it turns out, I liked it and I kept on doing it for another two years. And then um, after three years, Hank came to me and said, you know, we've done a lot of great stuff with VidCon and we've grown it up really big. We went to you know, Amsterdam. We went to Australia. Um, but I realized that it's like all on me and it's my company. And if there was ever a problem, it's all on me and it's my company. And um, it would be great. Maybe we should have someone to help invest in the company or maybe we should sell it so that that dream of democratizing the creative economy and, and celebrating this community-driven online media stuff that we're all doing around the world. I can take that actually around the world to places like London and other places. Um, do you want to come help me run the company? And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing anything else. Sure, why not? <laughs> and so, yeah, that's why... Um, that was about a year and a half plus ago, and that's why we started looking around and um, had a lot of people that wanted to invest and buy, but Viacom was the best in our part of Viacom. Nice. So what, what is a day in the life of the CEO of VidCon like? Well, it depends on where I am. Um, so I live in San Francisco, and I've been there for 20 years since we started ZDTV slash Tech TV. VidCon itself is based in Missoula, Montana, which is, um, if you know, in the U.S., there's Seattle, um, Microsoft, Nintendo, and, um, and uh, Amazon. And then you go east about, um, um, I don't know, 500 kilometers or so, uh, and you get to the mountains in Montana, and that's where they are. It's kind of the middle of nowhere, and it's beautiful, but you've got to take like five planes to get there. Not really two, but it feels like five. Um, so that's that. But also after Viacom bought us, Viacom in the U.S. is in L.A. and New York, and so I have two bosses, one's in L.A. and one's in New York. So you can imagine... I get to go to Montana, L.A., and New York, which I call the Bermuda Triangle um, because you never know where I am. Uh, And then as we get to London, there's London, and then, you know, we do Australia, and then there's other things. So, um, you know, a lot of times I wake up and I'm like, what the heck city am I in? Uh, And then I'm like, oh, yeah. 
Uh, and so it depends on where I am. So if I'm in San Francisco, I, I get up and I work in my home office and it's awesome. Um, but I could be in L.A. and then it would be working with our marketing team, which is based there, uh, as well as a lot of the people at Viacom Digital Studios that I work with, um, along with um, uh, the talent teams there across Awesomeness is there as well. If I'm in New York, it's, you know, New York, we're in corporate, doing corporate things. Um, so it, it, it's always different, which I like because I get bored really quickly. So if I can always do different things, that's great. So as, as VidCon expands, how do you, because um, I went to my first VidCon last year in Anaheim, and I think what struck me was like the magic of being with the community. Like you can feel it when you walk into rooms. When you uh, expand in the way you have, how do you keep that magic? Well, look, the, the magic doesn't come from us. The magic comes from the environment in, that we create where the creators and their fans have magical moments together. So, you know, for us, and I, I tell the team, it's all about, and, and I wish I had come up with this phrase, but I didn't. I stole it from Steve Jobs. Um, surprise and delight. And, uh, and I stole something else from, I think, the guy who was running TikTok. Um, ma- we want to create magical creator moments, and we want surprise and delight. And if you do that, and do it in a way where it's a safe space, and it's fun, and people can have life-changing experiences, you're going to get that energy and that magic. And so everything we do is designed to kind of create an environment where those things can happen on their own or because we've sort of put some things together to make it work. Nice. And since you've, um, since you've started at VidCon, what, what has been the most noticeable evolution in the industry, maybe in terms of, of the creators or sort of the partnerships that have evolved? So a couple different things. Um, uh, first of all, when VidCon started you know, 10 years ago, it was all about YouTube. Creators were on YouTube. The fans were on YouTube. The community was on YouTube. Um, it was YouTube. And over the last 10 years, 9 or 10 years, we've seen the rise of many other platforms that are great. So Snapchat, for example, or Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. I mean, I'm surprisingly, I'm like a big influencer on LinkedIn. <laughs> I didn't plan on it. but Yes, yeah, so you've got, you were saying you've got over like 20,000. 20,000 connections on LinkedIn. So uh, if you're not connected to me on LinkedIn, I'm Jay Louderby. I'm actually <laughs> Jay Louderby on everything. So Twitter and all of it. So, but um, all these different platforms rose up, TikTok and uh, and they are, creators are going and building audiences there. And as it turns out, some creators are great for YouTube. Some creators are great for LinkedIn. Some creators are great for Instagram. Some creators are great for Twitch. Some of them are good across all of them. But as new platforms have come up and started to create great opportunities for creators, creators who can paint on the canvas of Twitch probably wouldn't have painted on the canvas of YouTube. And so we now have these places, more and more creators can now be creative and build audiences and build lives across these new platforms. Like, what happens on LinkedIn? Very different than what happens on YouTube. And that's great. So that's, that, to me, is one of the big changes. Yeah, we, we interviewed a lady um, a few months ago called Emma Gannon. She's a, a British journalist, and she kind of said the same thing, that YouTube wasn't the platform for her, for her creativity, and she now has a huge audience on podcasting. Mm-hmm. And we are actually really, that's, that's one of the mediums that we're really excited about, because podcasting gives people a voice who might not necessarily be comfortable in front of a camera. Absolutely. Well, also, and I think this is really interesting, we always said this about YouTube, that uh, YouTube and online video was the most intimate medium because people would take their camera and they basically stick their nose in it and talk to it. And then when people watched it, they would be holding it in their hand or looking on their, their tablet or their computer. And the faces were about the same size. So, you know, you look at, 
at somebody doing a vlog and their face is basically the same size as the face if you were talking to them. And that really creates an intimate connection. But podcasting is even more intimate because it's inside your head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, we were speaking to Rhett and Link as well uh, because they're over here for the first time in London and they were saying that they tried a format where when they were doing Good Mythical Morning, they got the audience in, so they filmed in a studio with the audience. And the feedback was that that wasn't great because their audience then felt they were one step removed, whereas it's exactly what you're saying. You want to feel like that person is talking to to you, not via a TV studio. Well, and that's, I think, one of the big differences between traditional media and traditional television and um, these new mediums that we're talking about that have come up, these new community-led media, is those barriers are gone, Yeah. right? I mean, there's so many barriers in traditional television between the host, the presenter, the whatever you want to call them, and the audience. So it's the studio audience, and we have this moat between us and the audience, or it's the teleprompter, or it's the agents and the managers and the producers and the craft services and all those things that can get between you and your audience, whereas... When you're an online video creator, there's nothing between you and your audience. It's, the, it's, it's that intimacy I was talking about. But it's also because there are no gatekeepers. Nobody went out one day and anointed Liza Koshy as the top YouTube star. She, just like pretty much every other YouTube creator, woke up one day and said, I'm going to start a YouTube channel and went out and logged in and put their username and their password in and had no subscribers and no followers and no fans and no friends. <laughs> and they built that up one by one, 10 by 10, 100 by 100. And nobody anointed them. No one put them there. They put themselves there. And that direct connection to the audience is one of the most valuable things. But it's also one of the most defining things of this community-led, community-driven media that we're all celebrating today. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I totally agree. It is the most exciting thing about online video, the fact that you don't have to wait for a commissioner. You don't wait for somebody to tell you you're good enough to go online. You, you trial through, and through trial and error, you'll get better. Yeah, well, exactly. And look, um, creativity is spread equally worldwide. All around the world are incredibly creative people with that heart of an artist beating in them that well, they want to create. But with traditional media, you had to go to New York or London or L.A. or... Bollywood or, you know, where, you know, you had to go to the centers of media and work your way up to get a shot at being a star or being, building an audience. Now you can do it from your bedroom or your basement or your tractor or wherever. And so what still excites you about the world of online video? Where do you think it's, it's going to evolve? Well, I think um, I'm just excited about online video. Anyway, I love walking around YouTube. I love a YouTube VidCon. I love talking to creators. I love just, you know, exploring what people are. I mean, I was like, yesterday I saw the Merrill Twins do a song live for the first time. And look, I'm not a 14-year-old girl, but I thought it was great. And it was wonderful. And I've talked to them a little bit. And they're wonderful people. So I love that. But I think the history of media is the history. The history of digital media is the history of disrupting every single media we've created um, through advances in technology and bandwidth. So in the early days of digital media, when the Internet was first started po- getting popularized, we had, uh, we had modems, you know, connected up to the phone line. That's how we got the Internet. We connected it to our frickin' phone lines. It was slow, but it was fast enough so that we could actually transmit an entire newspaper in about a minute with photographs. And so all of a sudden, the whole print media got destroyed. I was running magazines at the time. I remember it. And then it got a little bit faster, and we got a faster, faster bandwidth into our house, and oh, it was fast enough to deliver a whole CD worth of music in about five minutes, and the music industry got destroyed. <laughs> um, and then it got a little bit faster, and now we've got cable modems and uh, you know, six megabits or 25 megabits going to our house, and it's fast enough to deliver an entire HDTV stream to us, or an HDTV movie or TV show, and 
we're seeing movies and television be disrupted, and that's what's going on right now. But the speed of that bandwidth into our homes and to our mobile devices is continuing to increase. So we've got uh, 5G coming out, which is going to give you, you know, like 100 gigabit or something to your mobile device. We've got that going into our homes. And what that means, since we've now disrupted every single media that's out there, is it's time to invent new media that we can do with this increased bandwidth and increased screen capability and increased processing power. And so that's where augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, and new things like, for example, um, uh, you know, telepresence, we're going to start building those media. And look, they're out there now. Anybody who's used a VR headset knows that it's crap. Anybody who's you know, used the Magic Leap knows that it's crap. Um, and, but it won't be forever. And it's really soon where it's going to be good enough and it's going to be immersive enough and we will merge the digital and the real world together in ways that are seamless or we'll put something on our heads and we'll be transported somewhere and we'll believe we're there. And there are creators that are going to create amazing stories in these new medium that are developing the storytelling techniques right now. Some kid in his basement with a Vive is going to be the next auteur of VR in 10 years. I don't know who they are or five years. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be any, you know, it's not all of us. We didn't grow up with it. But that, I'm excited about seeing what happens and what's there. And I can't wait to explore those worlds and hear, have those stories told to me in these new mediums that we're going to create. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you, when you talk about it, you talk about it on a very global scale in terms of, you know, this is something that affects all of us. Do you, do you find when, because this is the first time London's, uh, sorry, VidCon's been to London, do you find differences between the online world in the UK versus the other places you've been to? Well, absolutely. And I think those differences are not only the creators and the stories that they tell and the way they tell them, although because it is a worldwide medium, everybody copies everybody else around the world. Um, but it's the fans as well. So it's really funny in, in the U.S., um, you know, when, when we think about our, our fan track, it's mostly teens. And the, the, the teens in the U.S. are very exuberant. They're very rambunctious. And a lot of what we do when we create our experiences, we try to channel that in ways where um, they don't hurt themselves despite themselves or where they can have a great experience, but that rambunctious exuberance doesn't extend out and make it a bad experience for other people. When we went to Australia for the first time um, a few years ago and did the show there, we were like, we were struck like, wow, these kids are so polite. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're going to the U.S. We're like, kids are, you know. Anyway, I have a, I have a teenager, so I can say it. But um, they were so polite. It's like we had to start designing experiences to kind of bring them out and bring that exuberance out and kind of like just, you know, it's okay to yell and scream when one of your favorite creators is on stage. So I think the audience in many ways is very different, and we have to make sure that, look, when we go and do a VidCon around the world, it's not like the Americans are coming. We're not going to do the American VidCon in the United, you know, from the United States is going to Australia and it's going to be just like, you know, it's not like McDonald's. We are not McDonald's. It's not the same experience around the world. We are geographically intentional. So when we do something in the UK, we want it to be a UK experience. When we do something in Australia, we want it to feel like an Australian experience. And that to us means understanding the creators and the audience and the industry and all those pieces. But thinking about it and doing it in a way that is uniquely about that place, not the McDonaldization of VidCon around the world. Yeah, we, um, oh, Helen spoke at a panel yesterday about blurring the lines between traditional and digital, which, which you moderated. And I think one of the things that we sort of touched on these past couple of days is sort of the recognition that's now starting to happen in the UK in terms of creators. So Joe Sugg was on Strictly Come Dancing this year, and, and it was almost like this whole new audience, like, who is this guy? 
Joe and, and he's been building his career for such a long time and, yeah. and his talent is undeniable. It's almost Joe's numbers don't matter at that point. Joe is a talent who happens to have been found through the internet. But it, just, it doesn't change who he is. No, I think my favourite thing about that is, because I've worked with Joe for a number of years, my auntie in Rochdale then knew who he was. <laughs> and I was like, great, she now appreciates what I'm doing. Instead of just thinking, who are these people you're working with? Well, yeah, and it's, a very, it's now become fluid where you see not only traditional, you know, the traditional online video creators moving in and doing things like dancing and other things like that. But I think it's really interesting to see the traditional stars start looking over at that well, because you know 10 years ago they're like oh, yeah, the cats riding skateboards we don't care about them um, but now they're looking and saying you know those online video stars really got something going like they have a direct connection to their audience they can interact with their audience without any of these feedback and filters and by the way they can tell the audience to buy their t-shirt and they'll buy it I can't do that and so you know you see Will Smith and Jack Black and Vanessa Hudgens and many others of these traditional media stars really going and creating this online direct-to-an-audience community because they realize that they have to to kind of keep their career going forward. So do you think linear TV is missing a trick in a lot of ways sometimes? You know, what is linear TV? I think when you think about it, and to me, let's create something that's a half hour long and let's stick it out somewhere so that people can watch it. What defines that as linear versus like a YouTube Red show? Or if I stick it at, is it the screen? You know, because I can watch YouTube on my big flat screen. Is it how it gets from the creator to that screen? Well, there's all these different ways to do it. Netflix, if I'm watching Netflix over my internet connection, is that any different from watching Channel 4 over my, you know, Virgin TV connection uh, or my Sky connection? I don't think it is. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a continuum of content, a continuum of distribution, a continuum of how things are packaged and displayed, and then a continuum of how things are found and discovered. So I think there are creators who are making shows and stories who don't get the different aspects of what defines media consumption today and that they will be less successful. And I think we're seeing producers and creators who are creating shows who understand that it need, you need to worry about interface design. You need to worry about how people are going to find and discover it. You need to worry about whether it's all delivered at once or in multiple chunks delivered over time. All those things are important. But to me, thinking about traditional TV versus internet TV is kind of like saying, I want my, gla- I want my water in a plastic cup versus a glass cu- wine glass or a a, a chalice versus uh, a Dixie cup. Those are just vessels, right? It's the water that matters. It's not the vessel that it's served in. Because when I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. I don't know, does that make any sense or I'm going off like... <laughs> I, I guess I'm thirsty. No, <laughs> I guess it's funny because Facebook have the um, the premiere function now, but that that is the same thing as as TV. It's just people watching the same thing at the same time. So it's funny that Facebook has had to define that way of consumption. Yeah, exactly. And then that and that's another thing. Exactly, where it's the set and setting of viewing. Like, yeah. where are you viewing it with friends? Are you viewing it on your own? Are you viewing it on the underground and you're pissed because you like get me off this freaking <laughs> thing? I just need to. Are you like it's? Is it? 
you know, t- 8 o'clock at night and you've got a pint and you're just kind of sitting back and watching it. Or it's, all those things are really important and help define the type of content you create and the way you produce it and promote it and package it and distribute it. So you have an overseeing eye, really, on, on creators and creation. Who is it that you really enjoy watching? It changes all the time. Now I like the Merrill Twins. Um, but it's, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a gamer, so I'm, and I love Matt Pat. Uh, I think, you know, I obviously love Hank and John. I think their stuff is amazing. Um, I, if you looked at who I was watching, like, Al Mills. I mean, I, like, Al Mills is just incredibly creative and fun to watch. Um, I, I just, I, and some of the technology stuff, I used to work with John Rettinger at Techno Buffalo, and I think he's an amazing tech reviewer. I really enjoy his stuff. Android Authority. Um, I could go on and on, but um, and it's also it's really nice because we have an amazing team at VidCon that you know basically watches. They watch till the end of YouTube and the end of uh, Facebook and Instagram to find all these great new creators. And our Slack channel is so fun because there's always new, amazingly. And it's like I was like, you got to see this, you got to check this out. I'm like, I've never heard of that creator before, and I did it. Like, wow, that's really good. So. Um, it's it's always changing and it's always like 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 Rhett and Link. I've been a big Rhett and Link fan forever, but I've never seen them do a musical performance and they did it last night and it was amazing. And it's like okay, well now I got to watch more Rhett and Link, obviously <laughs> again too. So I got to move them to the top of the stack. And sorry, you touched briefly on YouTube Originals just beforehand. What what sort of content on there have you enjoyed watching? You know, I, I haven't really watched a lot of YouTube Originals. Um, I think like Escape the Night was really interesting. Um, some of the other stuff, but I mean, I, I tend to follow more sort of obscure things. So. Um, I, I, I'm not a big, I mean, I like TV and I watch TV, but, um, you know, the, the sort of more TV oriented content, I kind of don't have the patience for it. <laughs> I mean, about the only thing I have patience for on that side is Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. I still have to catch up on the last season before I uh, can watch the, 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 the sixth before I watch the seventh. I've been reading the books. Um, I read the books a long time ago and I was almost like, I have to stop watching now because they're moving beyond the books. But then everybody's talking about what's happening, so I kind of have to watch anyway. I was waiting for the books, but, you know, I guess, oh well. (laughs) So we're going to open it out to questions now. Does anyone in our lovely audience have a question for Jim? Yes, here at the front. We're just going to repeat back your question when you say it. So um, just to repeat that, you said that um, new media is always finding a way to evolve. And are you saying um, how will we combat that, the more paywalls that, that go up? Well, look, I think you're always going to get, um, you know, when it comes to monetization, there is a, there is, look, there's a basic, there, there's a value exchange. If I create something and I put it out on YouTube and you watch it for free, I've actually created something of value for you. I've created something that you are consuming and giving your time to. And my time for creating it is valuable and your time for consuming it is valuable. And so... Creators deserve to, to, in some way, achieve some value out of that. And paywalls and advertising and other mechanisms, just ways for creators to get paid. What I really like is the rise of new ways for creators to be paid for their time and the value that they create, but in ways that allow people to still watch on their own. So, for example, things like Patreon, where you know, top creators, can, top fans will support them, patrons, but it's still available for free. There may be special things that are done. Um, and the, the other thing is I think that there, because there are so many people that are creative around the world who will always want to create new stuff and, 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 and start new channels, there's always going to be an opportunity for new engaging things out there that will reach an audience for free. They'll grow up and they'll figure out ways to, to monetize. Um, but I, 
we're not going to enter a world where everything is paid again. So if all of a sudden there's something you really like and there's a paywall, you're like, I can't get it, go find something else. Because you're like, something else out there is going to be really good. It's going to grab you and be like, oh, yeah, I forgot about you because you put that wall up. Sorry, I got a new thing I like now. I don't know if that answered your question, but... Great. Did we have another question? Yes. So it was, as uh, online creation has been... uh, evolving more money is put into production more time more teams as well so how do we support fresh creators when they're kind of up against the big production well a couple different ways one i think you you have to focus on passion and what are you passionate about and is there a is there an audience out there that shares that passion that will come and experience that with you without requiring that you, you know, have a 4K camera and, you know, tungsten lights. And, um, and, and that exists. I mean, we've seen that over and over and over again. Kevin Alaka from YouTube uh, continually exposes people that are doing really interesting things and building audiences without, seriously, you know, the budget of, of you know, without craft services and all that. Um, so that's one. I think the other is there are many new platforms launching and, Find a new platform where there's less competition and go out and build something there. So look at LinkedIn, for example. LinkedIn video is probably about a year and a half old. And we've seen people that have built great audiences and communities around themselves because they went somewhere where there wasn't anything. I think you're going to see more on video with Pinterest, for example. And so go look at these places that don't have that, um, that, don't, that aren't a crowded environment and start thinking about how do I build and appeal to people on this platform. Um, and... You know, I wouldn't worry about quality that much. The most important quality to me is audio. Make sure your audio is good. Um, people forgive a lot, but if they can't hear you and understand you, they're not going to pay attention. Great. Yes, there's another question here at the front. So that's what role do you think governments should have and industry bodies in censoring social media? Um, I, I actually, I mean, I'm, I feel like governments should get out of the way. However, there are times when, for example... Um, I fundamentally believe that every creator should get paid for what they do. And if you're a creator and you put time and energy into creating something, nobody should be able to take that and redistribute it and make money off of your creation without you having some of it. And so I think government has a real good role to play in you know, making sure that that is the case and going after bad actors who are ripping people's content off and making money on it and not sharing it with a creator or not giving it to the creator. The other side of it is, and I'm not sure that this is probably a task of government, but I think it's something that we all need to be very mindful of, is um, as a creator, if you build a community and, and build that up, you have a lot of trust between yourself and your audience. And if you start doing brand deals, for example, or you know, getting free gifts or free trips and things like that, and you're not disclosing, you lose the trust of your audience. So that trust is so important that, I, you know, whether government's involved or not, you should. I know government's very involved in this right now here in the U.K. particularly. But you should just disclose, whether it's a pound ad or it's like, hey, you know what? So-and-so took me to this beautiful Isle of Malta, but I really wanted to bring my community along because I want to share all these amazing things we can do together here. And thank you, you know, EasyJet for bringing me there. I think that sort of thing that feels authentic and real to what you do, I mean, look, if you're a dog grooming channel and suddenly you're doing dog grooming in Malta, I mean, maybe you could make it work, but maybe not. 
Um, maybe you're living your best life. In maybe life. you are. Maybe there's special dogs in Malta that need to be groomed. Um, but definitely disclose that. And I think everybody should disclose that. I think journalists who get free gifts and free trips and things like that in traditional media should disclose what they're doing too or not do it. Uh, and so I think that government can help with that. The other side of it is where we see um, bad actors come in and you know really try and fake people out and do like what we're seeing on Facebook right now. Um, I think government has a role to play. The problem is governments don't understand the inner workings of technology well enough to probably do a good enough job. So we saw this play out in the U.S. where Facebook started to get raked over the coals because, oh, they're giving private data to, you know, Kayak or somebody else. I mean, what was really happening was an API call where they, you were searching for a trip and you were using Facebook to log in or you, they were interacting. It was making it easier for people to do things. It wasn't that Facebook was just blindly giving your, your personal data away. They were making it easy for you to log in or to get this or to do that. And that, that to me... And, and, you know, the government is like, oh, that's bad. Stop doing it. But if they stopped doing those API calls, we'd all be screaming and yelling because suddenly we have to type our information in over and over and over and over again. And nobody wants to do that. So the people that are making the rules need to really understand how digital technologies work. And unfortunately, except for some exceptions, that's typically not the case. So that's a problem. Did we? Yes, there's another question there, sir. What's the future of VidCon? So are we going to see it in other countries? Are we going to see it in other places? Well, so before we sold to Viacom, we did a, uh, and I, when I took over, we did a little exercise of like, what do we want to be in 20 years and, or five years or 10 years? And we kind of came to the cl- conclusion. It's like, we want to have VidCon in every single continent in the world. And then we refined it a little bit because penguins don't have cameras. So we probably wouldn't do Antarctica. Um, but, I, I, you know, fundamentally, I think VidCon is a way to celebrate and help push forward this wonderful medium that we've all created, this community-driven media, that's still a vision of all of ours. So it's Hank's vision, it's our vision, Viacom shares that. Uh, and one of the things, one of the reasons why Viacom was such a big, uh, uh, interesting and great place for us to sell to is because it is truly one of the few global media con- companies. I mean, they're big in Europe, they're big in Africa, they're big in Asia, they're big in Australia, they're big in... Um, South America, North America, Central America, they're just not big in Antarctica. And so, um, you know, I'm not going to, like, announce anything because I don't have any firm plans to announce. But we should be bringing VidCon everywhere. So is it coming to a city near you? I don't know. Stay tuned. We'll see. Okay, and we're just going to take one more question from the audience. So I was going to say, so that was web series traditionally haven't had the big production budgets, but now that as they evolve and we have more ad breaks, so for example on Facebook, do you think we're going to see the next Game of Thrones on a platform like Facebook? Well, I think you have to look at um, the money. Who's going to pay for it, right? I mean, Game of Thrones, I looked at Game of Thrones, and you see the opening of Game of Thrones, and I was like, that was bigger than my entire budget of the online <laughs> video company I ran for a year. It's like, whoa! Uh, it was great. Um, so is there enough money to support creating those sorts of things on those platforms. And that tends into, are there enough people that are going to watch it? Is there somebody who's going to make a bet that they can build something big enough? And are there brands that are going to support it um, or services or whatever? So I think, yeah, it's entirely possible that it's going to happen. Um, but where are the dollars going to come from? And I still don't think these platforms are big enough to aggregate that many eyeballs together to create something Game of Thrones-like for YouTube today. But yeah, I think we're going to see it down the road. Um, I, I mean, absolutely. And uh, it may not be YouTube. It might be Facebook. It might be Facebook Watch. It might be Instagram TV. It might be Twitch. It might be Amazon Prime. It might be something else. 
But yeah, that's going to happen. And we're just going to finish off with a little quick fire round. So, um, Jim, what's your favorite podcast and why? Um, my favorite podcast uh, is um, this one that is, um, it's basically, um, it's, it's, so I like this band Fish, right? And there's like this, this one that's, I think it's called Tales of Osiris. I don't know, I just get it and listen to it. And it's a bunch of guys who explore the in-depth parts of Fish music and their jams and what's in there. It's really geeky and wonky and there's probably nobody out there who listens to it but me. But I really like it. Amazing. What's your favorite TV show? Uh, Game of Thrones at this point, but um, I'm also a big hockey fan, so anytime the Sharks are playing hockey, that becomes my favorite. Uh, most interesting YouTube channel? You know, the most interesting YouTube channel, I think they're all really interesting in different ways. I mean, look, I love, like I was talking about before, I really love Matt Pat and what he does because he takes, in many ways, like things like video games and adds these lessons on top of them. Like, you know, he'll take the bomb, the, the bomb, um, the it was the, the cannon, I forget the name of the guy that shot out of the cannon, but you know, he'll use that and start talking about ballistics in the 17th century and bringing physics in all about this little Mario thing that happens. And I just think that's brilliant. Amazing. Well, this, we're going to wrap it up there. So you can find more about the BBC TalentWorks on Instagram at BBC Studios TalentWorks. But let's just give a massive round of applause to our guest, Jim. Thank you. Thank you guys very much. Thanks, that was awesome. Guys. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more about us, we're on Instagram at BBC Studios Talentworks. This podcast is produced by Shola Aledje for BBC Studios.